get comfortable and find your Bible and find uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22, just a, just a few verses, 18 through 22 of 1 Peter and chapter 3 as we continue with this uh, brief series, The Timeless Truths for Changing Times. And we're in the fifth part, the fifth sermon of this series, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 22, and I want to start just by reading uh, this passage of Scripture. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. And he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, only eight people were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to Him. And may God add His blessings to the reading of His Word this morning. The title of the message is The Conquering Christ. The conquering Christ. The best news we have ever received comes from a graveside just outside of Jerusalem. Did you know that? He is risen, we say at Easter time. And we can say every Sunday and do it joyously. Shout it from the rooftops. On that resurrection day, life and death met in a tomb in mortal combat. And life won. Death died. Jesus' death, as a matter of fact, was the death of death. And now Peter is talking to a people who are suffering. There is no more timeless truth for these tough times, for these changing and challenging times than this. Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead. Uh, that is a truth that science cannot explain. History cannot repeat. Time cannot erode away. That Christ is risen from the dead is a basic fundamental truth that proves Him to be the Son of God. You know, they say that when Jesus was dying, some of those uh, uh, there near the cross sh shouted at Him, come down from the cross and, and prove you are who you say you are. Prove yourself to be the Son of God. That was the wrong statement. They should have stood outside the tomb and shouted, Raise yourself if you're the Son of God. They'd have gotten a big surprise. And someone has well said, If Jesus Christ is still in that grave, then nothing else really matters. But if He came out of that grave, nothing but that really matters. Peter is therefore telling us of the conquering Christ. He, he conquered over suffering. He overcame the suffering. And truly, 
we're going to see this morning that he went through a great deal of suffering. And he begins in verse 18 with the suffering of Christ, uh, Peter does. But he ends with the enthronement of Christ. And I think that's important. And I want us to see this morning how Christ conquered, how he overcame. Three things that Christ accomplished. First of all, he had his victorious atonement. Or maybe we could call it our victorious atonement because it was for us. Let me read verse 18 again. Follow along. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Some versions place the word uh, suffering there. Uh, instead of died. Maybe your version says that he died instead of suffered. But Jesus had suffered more than anybody could possibly suffer. And there's no sorrow like the sorrow that Christ experienced. Now, as a, as a man, as, as human and divine, but he was certainly 100% human, he was 100% divine. You figure it out. Jesus wasn't half man and half God. He was all man and all God. But he had body, soul, and spirit, and he suffered body, soul, and spirit. First of all, he suffered mentally. He suffered mentally. Uh, he was in great anguish there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 34 says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Can you imagine the mental suffering of Christ? Did you know that he lived, uh, I believe, his entire life? I, we, we don't know when he became aware, but certainly it was not at the very end of his life. At some point in his life, he became aware of who he was and where he was headed. And he spent the majority of his life in the shadow of the cross. Have you ever thought about the agony of anticipation? Just imagine yourself in something terrible that you know is coming. And you're going to have to endure it, whatever it is. might be an operation, you know, some kind of surgical procedure. might be visiting relatives. <laughs> something really, really awful. No, you know what I mean. <laughs> but you know it's coming, and you just dread it. But imagine being Jesus, knowing most of all your life, that you were going to have to suffer for mankind. That must have been torturous. Psalm 88 and verse 15 says of the Lord Jesus, I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. There's a prophecy right there. That Jesus sometime in his teenage years became aware that this is where he was headed. I believe that every thorn... Jesus pricked his finger on, reminded him of the crown of thorns that was to come. And I wonder if every rugged piece of timber that he put his hands to in his father's carpenter shop reminded him of the cross that he would one day bear. I wonder if every time he nailed a, a nail into a piece of wood, if he thought about, that coming day when they would nail him to a cross. Jesus lived in mental anguish, anticipating the cross. 
And I want us to remember that as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning. Folks, I wonder if sometimes we approach our relationship with Jesus Christ too nonchalantly, too calmly, too serene. I wonder if sometimes we overemphasize that relationship to, to where Jesus is our best buddy. I'm his best friend. He cares for me. Do we ever stop? And I'm not saying dwell on it. But there are times in life, and even in worship, when we should dwell on the mental anguish that Christ endured. Jesus said, as we come to the Lord's table in a minute, to remember in the midst of his suffering. You, you have to know he was in deep anguish. But Jesus not only had mentally, uh, was mentally suffering, he suffered physically. He suffered physically. We know that. You look at the chapters of, in John chapter 18, chapter 19, you read in detail about Jesus' physical suffering. He was struck in the face by the officials during his questioning. Had his beard pulled out? Had his face? Can you imagine being the Lord Jesus Christ, creator of the universe, and having some human, disgusting, smelly people spit in your face? He had twisted thorns forced down upon his scalp, forced to carry his own cross, then nailed to that cross physically for six hours. Before all of that, Jesus was flogged. We sometimes use the King James word scourged. I don't have time to go into all of what scourging means or even the intensity of, of what the body goes through when it hangs upon a cross. The cross was not merely used as a tool of execution. It was used for torture. You know, the Romans would, would flog and scourge a man just enough. Would literally, you know, we sometimes refer, think of Jesus in, in the kinder ways that he was kind of whipped with a bull whip, kind of a whip that put stripes along his back. But that's not what the Romans did. When they scourged, when they flogged, they used what we call the cat of nine tails. The leather handle, the long straps with bits of bone and metal embedded into the ends of those straps. And, and they would work very hard, and there would be two of them. So as soon as one would finish, another would start from the other side, ripping the flesh, so that it was just ribbons of flesh hanging on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he had to carry his own, his own cross. No wonder he couldn't carry it. But they stopped just short of that, because they wanted to, to continue the suffering by nailing them to the cross. Jesus lasted six hours. Physical suffering. Imagine the physical suffering of our Lord. But he also suffered spiritually, as if the mental anguish and the physical suffering wasn't enough. He suffered spiritually. Upon that cross, he died alone. He, who was the beloved and begotten son of the Father, now has become the subject of the Father's scorn. The sin of the centuries now fall upon Jesus' burden shoulders, the, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus suffered a spiritual death upon that cross. And what is a spiritual death? 
it's not a soul separating from the body. It is a soul being separated from God. Jesus said from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God the Father had to turn his eyes from God the Son. Upon that cross, suspended between heaven and earth, forsaken by God, despised of men, was the Lamb of God. It was the Lamb of God. Why did Jesus die? Well, verse 18 tells us, let's read it again, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. You see, Jesus died a vicarious death. That means when he died, he died for us, and we died in him. He died in our place. In other words, You've heard it a million times. And if you, if you haven't, maybe this is your first time to hear this. It should have been us on that cross. It should have been me. It should have been you on that cross. But Jesus was on that cross. That's a vicarious death. He also suffered a, a, a victorious death. It was, it was not totally in defeat. Because when he died, he provided the death of death. What seemed to be Satan's greatest victory actually was Satan's greatest defeat. Envious elders looked on and said, he is dead. Yeah, because he was. You know, those uh, smirking Sadducees looked upon that cross and said, he's dead. Devilish demons began to dance around and to, to shout and, and, and uh, fellowship among themselves. They partied and said, he's dead. And he was dead. In the flesh. Romans 5, verse 10. It's an important verse. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Then, how much more? Having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? That's atonement. But I don't just want you to see the victorious atonement this morning, I want you to see, secondly, the victorious announcement. The victorious announcement. Because he goes and preaches a, a very special message to, uh, well, let's just read. <laughs> Look at verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, Jesus died upon that cross spiritually. His soul, for a time, was separated from God. But notice that he was also made alive spiritually. That's what verse 18 tells us. While his body was on the, in that old smelly, clammy tomb, while it was in there, his body was restrained, so his body lay there, but his spirit was free. His spirit was released. And with that spirit, Christ went on a preaching mission. Now, look, if you will, verses 18 going into 19, the end of 18, made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, that's always been a kind of a, a, a weird, strange kind of a verse. Jesus Christ preached while his body was in the tomb. But he preached nonetheless. Well, to whom did he preach? It says he preached to the spirits in the prison. Well, who are the spirits in the prison that he preached to? Is he giving people who died 
a second chance to be saved? No. No. Hebrews 9.27 says, it, it is appointed for men to die once, but after that, the judgment. There is no second chance after death. Well, is he telling angels that they can be saved? No. Angels are not in need of salvation. They can't enjoy the salvation that we enjoy. We talked about that recently. And yet Christ is preaching to spirits in prison. Who are those spirits? Well, let's let Peter tell us. In his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he writes, For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. And the word hell is a very special word. It's not the hell that you and I normally think of. It is the Greek word Tartarus. Tartarus. It means a dark, murky place. Something in the underworld. That is, there are certain class of angels that are chained in a gloomy pit. And these angels have rebelled against God, His authority, and His plan, and are being kept there till the time of God's judgment. They're in prison. And Jesus descended into the lower part of the earth on a preaching mission to preach to these spirits. What did He preach? What did He preach? Now, the word for preach in verse 19 is another interesting word. It's not normally used uh, in the New Testament. The word we normally use for preach means to evangelize. But Jesus isn't going on a mission to save souls. The word that's used for preach here is caruso. Caruso, which means to proclaim as one would proclaim a victory. He's going forward as a herald. You know, when a Roman general would win a great victory, he would send a runner in advance of him to announce that the victory had been won. And that's what Jesus did. You see, there are some fallen angels in the world today, and they're called demons. Other fallen angels are not loose in the world. They are in Tartarus, in chains, awaiting judgment. And it was to those rebels in prison that Jesus went and announced victory. You may be saying, I don't understand the point of all of this. Well, you have to understand what Simon Peter is trying to tell his audience of that day. Peter is reaching out to a people who are suffering greatly. And they've been victimized by the devil. And he would tell them in chapter 5, verse 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And Peter is saying, I want you guys to know, I know you're suffering. I know you're going through a hard time. But Jesus has won the victory. He's won the war. You may go through certain battles in life, but ultimately you will be on the winning side if you remain in faith. In Christ. You remember what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11? He said that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. And what is Peter telling us? He's telling us here that Jesus has won the victory in heaven, on earth, and down below the earth. A complete victory. And in the lowest caverns of hell, they know of Jesus' victory over death and the powers of Satan. Because, why? Jesus came and told them so. It's kind of like a victory lap. Jesus is, is going around, and he's saying, you know, he's not doing it arrogantly like maybe some you know, of our sports stars today, filled with pride. But he's doing it because ultimately he is the victor. And he wants the entire universe to know. It's like Jesus just running around and making sure, looking in the eye of every one of those angels, saying, I win. I win. I am truly number one. With Christ, we see his victorious atonement and that wonderful announcement you know, to the spirits there in chains and bondage there under the earth. But finally this morning, I want you to see his victorious achievement. His victorious achievement. See, as a result of all this, we can be saved. Look at verses 20 through 21. Who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah? Now, you know, when we follow Peter's line of thinking, we really have to study and do our, do our due diligence here to try to figure out, Peter, what you just, you're just coming up with all kinds of subjects here. And this may seem a little strange, but we'll, we'll bear it out. Who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared? Now, what does that have to do with it? Let's, let's read on. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Then he thinks about that. You know, that reminds me of baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, saves you, not, 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 of the, not at the, as the removal of dirt from the body, not like you're taking a bath, in other words, but the pledge of your good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Jesus' victory. I mean, it was very sad on, on that day Jesus died, and for three days they were mourning his death. But the resurrection gives us the victory. In verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Now note that Jesus, that uh, Peter rather, uses the word save twice. Peter is talking about salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why was Jesus raised? The Bible tells us he was raised to accomplish our salvation. So praise God for that. Peter gives us two illustrations to illustrate all of this. The first is Noah and his ark. And the other one is baptism. Both are very important. Peter is connecting the sins of these angels to the time of Noah. Peter is saying, oh, by the way, this reminds me of the days of Noah. Eight people were saved in Noah's ark, and that's a picture of of Jesus Christ. God was going to judge the world during Noah's day. We, we remember probably very well from our childhood the story of Noah, how God was going to judge the world. Uh, the sins connected with these 
fallen angels and others cause the world and the people to become a stench in the nostrils of God. God was going to judge. He was going to cleanse. He was, he was going to start all over with this, just Noah and his family. Now, God told Noah to build an ark to God's own specifications, and he did so. And God said to cover the outside of, of this ark, this big, huge boat, uh, cover the outside, cover the inside with pitch. Pitch. Now, pitch was a tar-like substance. If you didn't want water coming into your boat, you could build the most solid boat you could, you could think of, but you had to put pitch to keep the water out. Now, this is interesting. The Hebrew word pitch, for pitch, is kapar. That's a Hebrew word, kapar. It is also the same Hebrew word that we get the word atonement. That's not an accident, folks. God is making a play on words. He is saying, Noah, I want you to place tar on the outside and on the inside to keep the water out. But the name of that tar is atonement. Place atonement on the outside and atonement on the inside. Well, what does the water represent? The water represents God's judgment. But you see, not one drop of judgment can penetrate through God's atonement. Remember the pitch on the inside and outside of that ark? Not a drop of judgment can enter into that as long as you're in the ark. As long as Noah was in the ark and his family was in the ark, he was safe from the water on the outside. Genesis 7.1 says in the King James, The Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and your whole family. It gives the impression that God is already there just inviting Noah and his family to join him. Had the ark gone down, God would have gone down, in a sense. If Jesus fails, God would fail. For, I'm sorry. For God in Christ was reconciling the world unto himself. But Jesus cannot fail, therefore God cannot fail. We sing, have faith in God. He watches or his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Now, when Noah went into the ark with God, God did what? He shut them in. They were sealed in. Another picture of salvation. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then when you believed. Not only did God shut the water out, but he shut Noah in. And that is how we are so secure. Some people today don't believe in eternal security. They believe that you can be saved and lost again. Maybe they have the idea that Noah was holding on to the outside of that ark, just barely hanging on. Oh, no. Noah was securely sealed on the inside. And so it is with Jesus' achievement of salvation. For those who believe, we are sealed with the security 
of our salvation. Peter says that Noah was saved by the water. You say, well now, how can, how can water save him? Just about killed him. <laughs> it depended upon his relationship with the ark. You see, if he was in the ark, the water would save him. But if he was outside the ark, the water would condemn him. The water represented the righteousness of God. God has righteous judgment. And he has righteous salvation. The water outside would be judgment. But if you were secure in the ark, <laughs> secure in the ark, the water would be salvation. The same water that brought death to almost the entire population on the face of the earth provided buoyancy to others. Do you see the picture? It's the difference of sailing over or seeking under. Now, see Peter's train of thought here. He's gone from Jesus preaching to the fallen angels, which reminds him of the sinful people of Noah's time and the water that flooded the earth. Now he says... Oh, that reminds me, this kind of symbolism symbolizes baptism. This is Peter's train of thought. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says that baptism is no good if all it does is just wash the dirt off of you. It must represent, represent a penetrating, cleansing of your soul. Peter is, is also not saying that you are saved by your baptism. Now listen, baptism is a symbol. It is a picture of your salvation. It's a picture of Christ's death, burial, resurrection. And our we really identify with that, don't we? I think most of us here have gone through that, and if you've been baptized, you've symbolized that in your own life. Christ's death and resurrection. The symbol and the reality are so closely related that the symbol sometimes is used to refer to the reality. So we don't need to, to look at a statement like this and say, oh, you know, oh, see, see baptism saved. You're not saved until you're ba baptized. That's not what Peter is saying at all. Sometimes that symbol and reality are so closely joined together, it's hard to separate them. Hence Peter's words, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. The act of baptism is a commitment on the part of the believer. It's a commitment in all good conscience to make sure that what is being baptized or what baptism symbolizes will become a reality in our lives. People are saved not by any ritual, but by the supernatural power of the resurrection. The only baptism that can save you is not a baptism of water, but a baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. The Holy Spirit places you in security of Jesus' salvation. On the cross, Jesus supplied the necessary atonement for us. 
And then Jesus went to the depths of the earth and made a victorious announcement. And then Jesus, through the resurrection, had made a victorious achievement. And I want just to read finally verse 22. We'll close. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to Him? I look at that and I see Jesus' complete salvation. His victory. The conquering Christ is complete in His victory. Heaven above. In my heart and hell beneath, Christ is Lord. We have the victory of the conquering Christ. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified freely forever. One day, He's coming. Oh, glorious, glorious day. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we come to you now asking forgiveness for our sins because, Lord, you have convicted our hearts of areas in our lives that are weak, we're at fault, uh, some shallowness in our faith, some bad habit in our life. Um, Father, something that pricks our heart and our conscience this morning We want a good conscience towards you. So we ask now your forgiveness of our sins. We pause just a moment to recollect them. Father, and then to confess them. And to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the conquering Christ. He was victorious. Father, he suffered. Oh, my goodness, he suffered. I I don't think I want to know just how much Jesus suffered. I don't know if I could handle it. I don't know if any of us could. But, Father, it is enough to know, to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And, Father, everyone here who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and truly believes that He died upon that cross for their sin. And that He rose again to defeat death once and for all. Father, I pray that they'll join us now in this Lord's Supper that we're about to observe. And then remember Jesus in the way that He would want to be remembered. In Your name we pray.